0: because it's name tag Sunday, let me introduce myself. My name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. Before I was a pastor, uh, I was a dad. So my name is Richard. I'm a father. Uh, Before I was a dad, I was a son. My name is Richard. I'm the son of my father. Uh, And before that, I was an idea that existed in the mind of God, as we all were. And so this morning, as As we read those opening words of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, I want you to receive those words as an invitation, one that goes out to all of us, an invitation to step into the great house of God and allow Jesus to show you around a little bit. A few weeks ago, we started this series that we're going to be working through in the summer months on the Lord's Prayer. And we did it with uh, with an idea and a metaphor in mind. Here's the idea, that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is offering to his people more than just an example of how to pray, that embedded within the Lord's Prayer is also the fundamental understanding of how to live, and that the Lord's Prayer itself is, is not just words on a page that that it opens itself up to an understanding of what it means to live in god surrounded by the presence of God, as close as the prayer that we might whisper using his name, our Father in heaven. And so the metaphor is the analogy of a house, where each expression in the Lord's Prayer opens up another room in the house that invites us to go in and explore something about the character, the attributes, the works of God. Last week, you remember, we started with the foundation. Uh, with that key proclamation that's there in the opening sentence of the Lord's Prayer, whether we realize it or not. It's not just our Father, it's not just our Father, it's our Father who is. Our Father who is raw existence itself. That is the foundational principle of our lives and our world, that we are not alone that this great edifice of God is built on the reality that he exists. That's the foundation. But this morning, with those words, our Father in heaven, I want you to imagine God taking you by hand and leading, him, leading you into probably, I don't know if it's the most important, maybe the first room that most people see when they're in a new house, as our Father takes you into the living room. Watch as he leads you in place and invites you to take a seat in a chair that is made like it was fit just for you. You have those in your house? Like, this is my chair, and I know it's worn out, but I wore it out, and so it fits me perfectly. It's, it's that kind of a seat. And you can warm your hands by a fire that never goes out. Or maybe if it's July, you can, you can cool your face by a, a refreshing breeze that just never stops blowing. You can take time to look at all the framed photos around the living room and maybe just maybe you catch a glimpse of yourself or somebody that you know. And you can pick up the scrapbook that's lying there and read through some of the events of your life. But before you do any of that, I invite you just as you imagine this scene to stand in front of the mantle and study the painting that hangs above there. It's God's favorite he treasures it above all things. He hangs it in the place where everyone can see it. And you can stand there and gaze at it a thousand times and it still feels fresh. And millions of people have stood there and looked at it and they see themselves and, and they're right. Captured in the portrait is the tender scene of a father and a son. Behind them is a great house on a hill and underneath their feet is a narrow pathway. And if it were not a portrait, but actually a film screen, screen, and you could back up the scene, you would see just moments before, the father run down that pathway from the house, and the son trudging up that pathway towards the house. And here in the scene, enshrined forever on canvas above the mantle in that great living room of the father's house, You see father and son wrapped together in an embrace. You can't make out all the details of the child's face because it's just buried there in the robes of his father. You can't see the face, but... But you know it's him. You can see a robe that's tattered and worn out and hair that's stringy and hasn't been taken care of in some time. You can see the mud on his legs and you can see filth on his shoulders and, and you notice that, that empty purse that's hanging loosely off, off the belt. Because at one time that was packed full of money. And at the same time the purse was packed full of money, the boy was, he was packed filled with pride. But now both of those things are long gone, completely depleted. This young one who sometimes we know as the prodigal, the prodigal son. He has no gift to bring. He really has no explanation for his behavior. What he brings with him is the smell of pigs that still hangs on his clothes. And an apology that he has been rehearsing for days as he made his way slowly back home. Here it is, Luke fifteen twenty one. Those words that Winslow and Calen read. Father... Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've done wrong against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That birthright, that that thing that as fathers we hope to pass to our children. Here's a child who, who has every reason to believe that it is long gone. And so he comes with an apology in mind. Dad, you can demote me. You can punish me. I know you're going to take my name off the mailbox and you're going to rub my initials out from the family tree. I know I've given up my place at the family table, but, but maybe, maybe if you can't take me as a son, you could at least take me as a servant. At least I have a place to lay my head at night and I would work in the family home. He's content just to be a hired hand. One problem with his well-rehearsed apology. Even though the boy is willing to stop being a son, the father refuses to stop being a father. And, and we don't get to see the the boy's face in the painting because it's tipped into his father's robes. But you cannot miss the father's look. Look at his tears glistening the way on his, I imagine, leathered, sun-soaked cheeks and a smile that shows through his silvery beard. One arm holds the boy up, weakened by shame and exhaustion. The other holds the boy close. Hurry, he shouts. "uh, Go get him the best clothes and dress him again put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. Get that fatted calf that we've been keeping for a special occasion and and get it ready. We're going to have a feast and celebrate because my son was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And those words, they must have stunned that young man. Half of them he was ready for. He's dead. He understood that. He was dead to his father. He was dead to his past. He had lost his place in the home. He'd abandoned his father and his legacy. He'd wasted his inheritance. He'd forfeited all the privileges of sonship. The father is not going to give up that easily. In his mind, his son is still a son. This is my son who is dead, but he's alive again. This child may have been out of the house, but he was never out of his father's heart. And he may have left the table but he didn't leave the family. How can you miss the message of the story of the prodigal son? We may we may give up on our desire, even give up on the will to be children of God. God is never willing to give up being your father. That's a message for Father's Day that belongs to everyone. Watch him as as he crashes through barrier after barrier. Nothing will make me stop loving you. You know, of all the names that we have for God, this may be his favorite, our Father. We know that for Jesus, this is the one that he used more often than anything else by, by a huge factor. While well, on earth, Jesus called God Father more than 200 times in all of his recorded conversations Luke 2:49 the very first recorded words of Jesus spoken as a boy Luke 2:49 didn't you know that I must be where in my father's house and then in his final triumphant prayer spoken in those days leading up to the victory and the agony of the cross Father he says Luke 23 I give you my life the Gospel of John alone, Jesus uses that word, Father, Abba, in the language of the Bible, 156 times. God loves to be called Father. I love to be called Father. Fathers, don't you love being called Father? It it, it celebrates what's good, what's best, what's noble and true about the way that we were meant to relate to each other. And it's probably said, I don't think you can underestimate how revolutionary this language for God must have been when Jesus first spoke it. One of the preeminent scholars of the last century, a man named Joachim Jeremias, he describes how rare the term was. Listen, I'm going to read just a, a couple of words. By the way, this isn't a 30-minute sermon. This is like a 12-minute sermon. So we're over halfway already, those of you who are thinking about cake. But, uh, but let me just read what he read. Uh, Jeremiah says, with the help of my associates, I have examined the prayer literature of ancient Judaism. The result of this examination was that in no place in this immense literature is ever to be found the invocation of God as Abba, Father. Abba was an everyday word. It was Abba. A homely family word. No Jew would have dared address God in that manner, Jeremiah writes. And yet Jesus did it in all of his prayers, which are handed down to us. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus authorizes his disciples to repeat the word Abba after him, he gives them a share in his sonship. Isn't that beautiful? A share in his sonship. He empowers his disciples to speak with their heavenly Father in a familiar and trusting way. You're never going to race through the Lord's Prayer again, are you? You're just going to hang out a little bit on those first two words Our Father. So rich, really, in significance and meaning, our Father. A reminder that we are welcomed into God's house because we have been adopted by the owner. When we come to Christ, God is not just forgiving us, dealing with what's in the past. He's setting us up for the future. We don't just get saved from something. We get saved for something. And through a dramatic series of events, we go from a status of being condemned in orphans to one of being adopted as children without fear. And here's how it happens. You and I, we, we come before God, and God sees it all. He sees everything that you're capable of, all the beauty that you can generate, all the skills that allow you to be productive. But he also sees the shame that you carry, the mistakes that you didn't avoid, the places where you fell into snares in life and just got yourself trapped. He sees the cataclysmic effect of sin. And because he's just, he can't ignore that. But because he's loving, he can't ignore you. Holiness means he will not dismiss sin, but love means he will not dismiss you. And so, in an act that just stunned, flat out stunned the heavens, he takes it all to the cross. And at the cross, he atones for sin. I mean, that's what the cross is about: God's justice and his love equally honored, and you and me, God's creations, forgiven. But that's not the end of the story. The story doesn't end with forgiveness. The story ends with a homecoming. Let me read you a couple of passages of Scripture. In fact, if you have your Bibles, these are ones that you're going to want to note and highlight or just reference again. The first is from Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 verses 15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of, and here it is, adoption. Adoption as children, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our own Spirit that we are children. Of God, Hold on to that, Romans 8, and then look with me at Galatians in chapter 4. Similar thought here, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law like us, so that in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as children. You know, it would have been enough if God just cleaned up your name and your history. But he does more than that. He gives you his name. It would have been enough if God just set you free. But he does more than that. He takes you home. He takes you home to the great house of God, to the Father's house. And you know who knows this more than anyone, I expect, is adoptive parents. And I don't mean to offend biological parents. I'm I'm one, Karina and I. we have, We have three kids. But in... The case, and this is not always the case, but more often than not, in the case of biological parents, at some point they decided they wanted to have children, and the crib was eventually filled. And sometimes that comes easily and quickly, and sometimes it's it's more burdensome and it's harder. But at no point, I think, do we have to wrestle with the kind of questions that adopting parents wrestle with. In our case, children came without, um, without that same layer of, of having to go through all of those intentional steps. Listen, pregnancies can be planned or unplanned. Uh, we know that I, I was an unplanned pregnancy. Hi, Mom and Dad. Um, I mean, they told me that. Unplanned doesn't mean unloved or unwanted or unwelcome, just unplanned. But you will never hear about an unplanned adoption. It's why adopting parents probably understand something about God's passion at a level that, that might be harder for others of us, because they know what it means to feel the agony of this empty space in their life and to to be out on this search, this, this, this relentless kind of hunt on a mission, to take responsibility for some child, uh, despite whatever past they might not know or whatever future... There's no certainty around it. Anyone who understands the way that God loves people will understand how there are parallels to the way an adopted parent rescues from despair and provides life and a future to a child that at least at first glance wasn't immediately or apparently their own. God's adopted you. God sought you, fought you, found you, signed for you, take you home. I'm in the realm of speculation here, but speculate with me a little bit. Why do people adopt children? And as you're thinking, let me tell you why God adopts them. And that may sound very presumptuous. You know, who is he? But I'm just going to read it to you right out of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 5. You can delight in these words. Ephesians 1, long ago, before God made the world, God chose us to be his very own. This is Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. God chose us to be his very own through what Christ would do for us. He decided then to make us holy in his eyes. Without a single fault, we who stand before him, covered now in his love his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending jesus christ to die for us if you could put this on the screen jonathan again ephesians 1 3 to 5 his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by sending jesus to die for us and here's the reason why and he did this because he wanted to Don't you love that? He's God. Why? Because he wanted to. You were his choice. And God thought that there was something in you that was worth going to extraordinary lengths, not just to save from something, but to save for something. For an eternal, vibrant, dynamic relationship with our Heavenly Father. In the Father's house. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to. And knowing full well the trouble that you and I were going to cause and, and the price that was going to have to be paid, he still signed his name next to yours and changed your name to his. So that any time you use the name Jesus in your self-description or the word Christian, little Christ, you are recognizing the way that he has reached into your life and laid claim to you. Your Abba, your Father, has claimed ownership of you. Now let me just pause for a second because uh, I've seen some people nodding and, and a little bit of interaction about as much as you can get in a Baptist church on a lazy June morning. But but there are a few people in the room for whom this is hard. Yeah, and I can see how hard it is in, in your faces. And I can see the squinty eyes and and it's hard on two levels. It's it's hard, but it's just because, frankly, it feels like it's a gimmick. There's no free lunch. I mean, we've we've learned that, and we're anxious about this idea that that the promise feels so big that when it actually gets delivered, it can't be as big as what was promised. What's presented and what's promised never feel like they're quite the same. But what if it is? And here's where it gets really complicated. For some of the people in our room, and this is going to be true in any room, the thought of trusting God as your heavenly father is so challenging because of all the ways that your earthly father disappointed you. If that's the case, let me urge you in this. You can change the name but don't change the relationship. If the word father is too emotionally laden for you, use the word Abba. Use the Hebrew word. But find the word that grabs the power of the relationship and puts it into your life. Don't confuse your heavenly father with the kind of fathers that we see on earth. Your father in heaven isn't prone to headaches and temper tantrums, he doesn't hold you one day and hit you the next. You don't have to think about your father in heaven and think about all the ways that he made your mother suffer or the way that he left you or or the way that he failed to provide for you. The man who fathered you, your biological father, may play those kind of games, but God never does. Let me prove my point here. Let me return to a set of verses that describe your adoption and, uh, and see if you can find the similarity. Remember I said there was one from Romans 8. There was one from Galatians 4. I want you to identify, if you can, the verb, in both cases, that precedes the language of adoption. Let me highlight it for you. Romans 8, verse 15. You've not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. You have received a spirit of adoption as children, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Keep that in mind. Galatians 4. When the fullness of time comes, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as children. Same verb. What was it in both cases? Receive. Receive. Uh, Maybe not the word we would have put there. You could have put lots of other words there. Before that, word receive ever gets written down i think the word that most people would have written there is achieve you could achieve your adoption you have earned the spirit of adoption you you have worked hard and therefore you have been received into the father's house but it doesn't qualify it doesn't say anything like that adoption is not something that we earn something that we are given it's not a feat that we accomplish. It is a gift that we receive. When you think about the process of adoption, at least as, as we know it in, in our part of the world, the parents are the active ones, always. Adoption agencies, they don't train kids on how to recruit parents. They look for parents who are willing to adopt Children, the parents make the call, they take the initiative, they fill out the forms, they endure the interviews, they pay the fees, they rearrange their lives and their house to create space and love and hope for a child. Can you imagine the prospective parent walking into an adoption office and say, hey, we'd like to adopt little Pedro here, but first a few few questions. Uh, He has a house, right? I mean, it's a place to live and he has money for food and tuition, right? He has somebody who will drive him to school. He has clothes to wear. Can he prepare his own meals, by the way? We could use some help in our house. No agency is going to stand for that. Representative is going to lift up their hand and say, wait a minute, you don't understand. You don't adopt Pedro because of everything that he has for you. You adopt him because you have what he needs, and what he needs is a home. It's the same with God. He doesn't adopt us because of what we have, give us his name because of our wit or our our wallet or good attitude. Boy, he's good looking. I'm bringing him in. No. Think carefully about this. If you cannot achieve your adoption through stellar performance, doesn't that also mean you cannot lose it through poor performance? God is not some fair-weather father, a love him and leave him kind of dad. He is there no matter how you perform. At your brightest moment, there he is, your champion. And in your darkest moment, not making excuses for the things that have tripped you up, but willing to lift you up and dust you off and give you what you need to get out there again. Let me show you something just as we close. I want you to go back into the living room with me. If it helps to close your eyes, I want you to imagine that painting hanging above the mantle, Father and Son. And I want you to see the words that are etched in gold at the bottom of the portrait. The Apostle Paul wrote the words, but it's your Heavenly Father who inspired them. Here's the words, Romans 8. Neither death nor life nor angels, nor ruling spirits, nothing now, nothing in the future, no powers, nothing above us, nothing below us, nor anything else in all the world will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father will never turn away. The doors to the the great house of God, they don't fall shut. And when the words of other people hurt you, or or the failures of your own life begin to distress you, you can gaze again at this painting, and you can be reminded of what it means to have a Heavenly Father. Because, you know, it's right to call Him holy, and it's correct to call Him king. But if you really want to touch His heart, then you call Him by the name that He loves to hear. Our Father. But let's do that now. Let's let's pray using those words. Will you join me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.